Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. And all right, well, glad you're here this morning. Good to keep going on the book of Romans. We are coming down on it, just a few more weeks left, but Romans chapter 15 is where we're headed, so you can start making your way there. Romans 15. Thank you. Got my Mother's Day tie on this morning. Tony just noticed. So the <laughs> All right, well, comedy writer Robert Orban, he wrote this. He said, who can ever forget Winston Churchill's immortal words? We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. And he says, Robert Orban says, it sounds exactly like our family vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what is it about family life that brings out the worst in us? Having grown up with eight siblings, uh, I, I know something about family bickering, all right? I'm, I'm no stranger to that. And for me, I mean, I know I would be a lot nicer to all of them if they would just all abide by my opinions. Everything would be just fine, actually, but they don't seem to do that. But now... Uh, in a different role, as a parent of six children, I have a whole different view of bickering and arguing in the home. I hate it. <laughs> I despise it. I'm, if you think about it, I'm sure that's exactly how God feels about arguing, arguing and bickering in his house as well, and his family. Actually, I was thinking about this whole thing, and I realized, you know, as we watch our children grow and I think any parent understands this and knows this and has seen this. Patience with a sibling is a sign of maturity. You can tell when somebody is starting to grow up, when, and they're getting more mature, when they stop bickering with their brother or sister about meaningless little issues. He touched my knee, you know, as she said this. Uh, sure, there's banter with brothers and sisters, but that selfish arguing kind of begins to fade with mature people. It's the same among spiritual brothers and sisters. It really is. And in the church, I've noticed that mature Christians choose to not bicker. They choose to be the people that will uh, fight for unity rather than fight with words with, with one another and over small issues. Sure, we know that there is a time to divide as believers. There are times when that might happen. There are moral reasons and there are doctrinal reasons why two Christians might need to divide. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he talk, told the church to put away that immoral man that was in their church. And so there is a time to divide for moral reasons. And several passages in the New Testament talk about making sure that false teachers aren't allowed to be in the church and teach. And so... There are certain times when their division is necessary, but when it comes to secondary matters, unity is what God loves. He just does. And this is what Paul actually has taken quite a bit of time now in the end of Romans to talk about. 
He's taken a couple chapters, Romans 14 and 15, to really talk about unity, getting along with brothers and sisters in the church. In fact, if you think about it, he has spent more time, he's going to spend more time talking about unity in the church than how Christians are to relate to the government. Only a few verses in Romans 13 about how we relate to the government, but two chapters on how we relate to one another. There's a clue. Because I think here's how this works, okay? So a person gets saved. They come to Christ. They believe what Romans says, that the gospel is the power to transform anyone. And so they, their life is transformed. They put their trust in Jesus. They're excited about the faith. And then they begin to seek out a group of people who believe the same way they do. It's just natural as a Christian. We want to be in a church. We want to be around other believers. It's so encouraging and lifting up. And this, they join this new family, and it's exciting, and they feel like they're part of a new family. In fact, as most Christians will probably tell you, sometimes the relationships you build in a church are even closer than the relationships you have in your physical family. But that Christian, that young believer coming into a church, they don't realize it yet, but they're going to be around these people a lot. <laughs> they're going to be around these folks uh, quite a bit, and and as, as believers and as Christians, we want more people added to the family all the time. That's our goal. We want as many people in this family as possible. That's what Jesus wants. And the longer you're in church, you realize that then that people are still people. And people are prone to doing people-y things. And so how does a mature Christian handle people issues. How does a mature Christian handle the secondary matters? And, you know, do we, are we supposed to leave the church that God loves because of all these uh, weird Christians and people who don't have the same opinions that, that we have? No. The answer to this, what, how do mature Christians handle this, is, is really in Romans 14, and it continues in Romans 15. So that's what we're going to talk about today, what strong Christians do to create unity what strong Christians do to create unity. And number one, what I see here is that strong Christians make it their mission to build up other Christians. Strong Christians make it their mission to build up other Christians. Look at Romans 15 and verse 1. We, Paul says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. He says, we then that are strong. Who are the strong he's talking about? Well, in the previous chapter, Paul referred to weak Christians as those who were deficient in their understanding of Scripture. They're still learning. It's not a dig on them. It's just the fact that they're not there yet. They're still learning. And in particular, he applied it to those who are still hung up on cert certain secondary issues, like not eating certain foods or keeping certain days sacred. And the strong, as he talked about, were the ones who, through Scripture, understood that God doesn't require those things to stay in favor with God. You don't have to keep these certain days to be in favor with God. You don't have to only eat certain foods to be in favor with God. That's, scripture tells us that's not necessary. And so they would be the stronger ones. Basically, it's just somebody who has, a, has uh, a better understanding of the scriptures. And I think that's in chapter 15 now, Paul opens up that application a little broader. The strong could be anyone who is more mature in their understanding and their application of scripture. And notice how Paul includes himself in that. We then that are strong. Paul's not boasting. 
It's not a subtle flex, as they like to say. It's, it's Paul just stating a fact. But he's also revealing the greatest or one of the biggest responsibilities that come with being a strong Christian. So he calls on every Christian who considers themselves to be strong. Do you consider yourself to be a strong Christian? Then you need to listen because there is a responsibility here. That's what this is all about. It's about the responsibility that the strong have. So listen to his command. It reminds me of a parent, as I was reading this, reminds me of a parent, you know, calling you when you're little, you know, I need a strong young man in the home with big muscles, and you know, you come run with your chest out. That's what Paul's saying, you who strong? Anybody strong out there? Any strong Christians? Then if you consider yourself strong, then I have something for you to do. Here's what you do. You bear the infirmities of the weak, and you do not please yourself. That's what strong Christians do. In other words, if you're a strong Christian that gets scripture, you get it. You get how all this thing works. You get how all of this uh, is put together. Then you are the ones who need to yield to your weaker brothers or sisters. That's on you. What an amazing principle here. Strong people are others focused. Strong people are others focused. This reminds me of the amazing passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Remember what Paul said there, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion of men, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The strongest man ever in the world, Jesus, took on the form of a servant and esteemed others better than himself. Strong people, strong Christians are others focused. That is what Paul's saying here as well. The strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Bear, what does that mean? Bear means to lift up. So what Paul's saying is the mature Christian needs to be there as a steadying force for those who have deficiencies in their understanding of scripture. We are that we need to be there to hold them up. The mature need to be patient and bend over backward to help the weak. Just come alongside them and tenderly help them. He also says here, and look in verse two, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Please, so he says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to please your neighbor. Please, the word please means to be agreeable. It means to accommodate oneself to the desires or the interests of others. So this whole thing here is about being selfless. Being selfless and accommodating are just amazing attributes uh, of, of Christ, of a Christian. I mean, this is what Christ did. He pleased others. Again, it's also the sign of maturity. When you come to church, everybody, when you come to church, and you're not just a consumer, but you're an edifier, then you're getting stronger in the faith. It's like the difference between a flight attendant and a, and a passenger on a flight. And as a passenger... You come on that flight and you are a consumer, you have a consumer mindset. I paid for this ticket 
and you better put on a good performance for me, or I will let you know. But the flight attendant is a totally different scenario. When they're on the flight, it's about, I'm here to serve. And the good ones, the good flight attendants, put a lot of effort into this. And with all of their effort that they put individually into serving people, it makes their company look better. Some people come to church with a very me-centered consumer mentality. I'm just a passenger here, and they're sitting there saying, this pilot better land this plane soon. I'm hungry. You know, this, this preacher better shut up. I'm hungry. And it better be a soft landing. It better be a great message, or I'm never coming back. And everyone better treat me good, or I'm going to let everybody know about it. But others, they come to church like a flight attendant. Their attitude is, which person can I help today? They come with, this eye, with these eyes that just look around saying, who needs my encouragement? Who needs a good word? What positive words could I use to build up someone today? I could say somebody, you did a great job on your ministry last Sunday. The thing I saw you do, amazing. I'm so blessed by what you do. How can my positive actions, they're asking themselves when they come in, how can my positive actions rub off on somebody else? How can my singing, how could, how could my, uh, my handshakes and my smile make a difference? Who could I pray for? Who is a person that I can tell just needs somebody to pray with them? What children's teacher could I encourage and give them a gift? How could I use my resources to reach people? Ultimately, a person that says, I don't want to please myself, I want to please, I want to, it's for the good of him to edification, what they're saying is, how can I build up? Let everyone please his neighbor for his good to edification. Edification is the word that simply means building up. Every one of us should be a builder and not just a consumer. And I want to thank the Lord for this church because, again, like I said last week, I am preaching to the choir. It's even the choir room here, okay, we're in, but I am preaching to the choir. I, this is an amazing and kind and friendly church. You folks are such have such a service, serving mentality, but I just want to tell you, let's keep doing this. This is so right. His good to edification, building up, building up, building up, building up. How can I build up? Now, this is a quick side note. As, a, as we're talking about this, this is a side note for singles. This is a great quality to consider in a mate. Don't look for a taker. Look for a giver. Look for someone who pleases his neighbor for his good to edification. Somebody who's building people up, he's a giver. I'm a giver. She's a giver. You don't want to be locked into a marriage with a taker. So keep coming to church like you do, everybody, smiling, serving one another, lifting each other up. That builds the church. And if we really want to do this well, then we need to follow the ultimate example in all of this. And who is that? Paul says it's Jesus. Look at the number two is strong Christians follow the example of Christ's humility. Strong Christians, they follow the example of Christ's humility. Look what it says in verse three, for even Christ pleased not himself. Even Christ pleased not himself. But, and by the way, if anybody had a right to please himself, it was Jesus. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Certainly as a man, Christ would, would have preferred not to suffer all the reproach that he went through. He would have chosen not to have to go through all the weariness and the loneliness that Jesus went through, the hunger, the hatred, the unbelief, the beating, the crucifixion. In quoting 
But just as Jesus said, or just as it says here, Jesus pleased not himself. In quoting Psalm 69.9, Paul was saying that Jesus willingly took the reproach that people had for God on himself. And ultimately, why was he doing that? To save mankind. He wasn't thinking about himself. His coming wasn't about his own comfort or me having a good, good old jolly time down here. He said, I, came, I, I did not come to please myself. In fact, Christ said in his own words, I, he, always, he, he was always doing the will of the Father. I always do my Father's will. He was always on mission. He came, he said, to serve and not be served. That's Jesus. That's the example of Christ. And we all are supposed to be following the example of Christ. That's the journey that we're on here in this world. Becoming more like Jesus. No matter how old we get in the Lord, no matter how long you've been doing this Christian thing, you haven't arrived yet. I don't, I, let none of us think that we've arrived yet. Let none of us in here think that because I've been a Christian this long, I can just kind of chill and, and uh, coast here. No, we are supposed to be more like Jesus. We're supi- supposed to be more friendly than we were yesterday, more loving than we were yesterday, more kind to others than we were yesterday. The great lesson here in this verse is Christ didn't always please himself. He willingly gave up personal comfort, even his life, even his life, even his life to help people. So let me ask you a question, everybody. In this, uh, this kind of min- mindset here as we're talking about Jesus, what do you need to stop complaining about? <laughs> what do you need to stop complaining about? What thing in your life is hard to do, but you need to see it as a way to build up others like Jesus did? You need to see it as something, you know what, this is what God has called me to do. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to please myself anyway. I'm here to please God, and I'm here to please others and do what I can do to, to help others. You know, Paul, actually, he's using the greatest guilt technique there ever has been in the world, and, that, and it's the thing I like to bring out if I really want people to do something. So if I ever, if I ever come to you asking you to do something, I bring out this one. This, you know the guilt trip is coming, okay? And that's, oh, you're too tired to get up for church on Sunday? Oh, I wonder if Jesus was too tired to get on the cross, you know? Oh, you're annoyed that those people in ministry, you know, they're annoying you? I wonder if Jesus was annoyed with all those Pharisees and them pulling out his beard. I wonder, I, I know I shouldn't do that, okay? That's, that's a guilt trip. But listen, there is some truth here, and Paul is bringing this in. We have a tendency to get so whiny about serving other people, serving our family, serving our spouse. We have a, we have a, we have a tendency to get whiny. We need to stop it and think of Jesus. Jesus, you gave your life. Jesus gave his life. How far would you go to love other people? I think maybe my favorite sermon illustration of all time, I'm going to tell it to you. It, it was, comes from a book called Written in Blood by Robert Coleman. And he tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. And she had a rare blood type which, uh, which she shared with her little brother. And the fact that he had recovered from the same disease that she had two years earlier meant that the chances of success were even greater. So the doctor carefully explained to this little boy, son, um, if, you would, if you would give your blood for your sister, uh, you would be so brave to do that, and it would help her so much. 
He said, would you be willing to do that? Well, little Johnny kind of hesitated about this and his lower lip, you know, kind of trembled a little bit. He had to think of it for a few minutes and then he finally said, sure, for my sister, I'll do it. So the two children, they were wheeled into the hospital room and Mary, very pale and thin, and Johnny, strong and robust and healthy. And he, he looked over at his sister and he smiled at her. And then they began to pull his blood out of his body and he watched as his blood traveled down that tube and, and out, of his, out of his body. Well, pretty soon Johnny's smile faded and he started to feel weak a little bit. And so he looked up at the doctor and he said, Doctor, when do I die? When do I die? Johnny was thinking in his mind that giving blood to his sister meant that he was giving up his life. That's what he had in his head. Yet because of his great love, he was willing to pay the ultimate price. See, this, I think, should be our Christ-like mantra. When do I die? When do I die? When do I die to self for the sake of others? When do I die to self for the sake of my spouse? When do I die for my fellow Christians? When do I die, even for unbelievers? When do I die? Who cares if I get another toy, if I have not done anything to build up others, to edify God's church? Strong Christians, strong Christians follow the example of Christ's humility. And then number three, strong Christians are guided by, or guided and comforted by all scripture. Strong Christians are guided and comforted by all Scripture. Look what he says in verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience or endurance and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. You know, why would a person live to serve others and not themselves. I mean, why would we do that? Why would we die to self for somebody else? Why would anyone want to give up personal comfort for ungrateful people? Why would any of us want to give up what we want for the sake of just some other person? The reason we do it is because of what we see in Scripture. And one of the things we see in Scripture, if we lose our life, we will gain it. That's what Jesus said. So this is why Paul quoted Psalm 69.9 in the verse previous uh, about Jesus taking on the reproach. Knowing that the Bible tells us ahead of time that things will be this way. This is how things are. The, you, the Bible tells us what's going to happen. And then therefore we with patience or endurance and comfort can have hope. In other words... Yes, Jesus suffered painful reproach from people, but that was no surprise to him. Jesus came into the world. He knew what was going to happen. Psalm 69.9 said this would happen. He knew, he knew everything that would happen to him and what he, what he would have to face on the cross. So he came into this world ready to face it because he knew there was a greater ending. I'll give up my whole life because I know there's something better at the end. Now, Paul says, okay, now think about that. Now, we need to be guided by the scripture in the same way. We need to be guided and we need to be comforted by the scripture. He, instead of being uh, wrapped up in what we think and what we want here, we want to be so wrapped up in what God says that we always see that there's hope in the greater ending. 
And that's how we can give our life to others. Look again at the verse here. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So here's what he's doing. He's talking about the Old Testament specifically, and he's saying the scripture was written for our learning. That's us today. The Old Testament is for you, and it's for me to learn. The word learning is most often translated in the New Testament as doctrine. Doctrine. It refers to the accurate teaching of the word of God. So what God is saying is, you need to be so wrapped up in the word of God that, you are, that it, is, it is the thing that is providing you all the comfort that you need, it is providing all the guidance you need, and it is taking you all the way to the end with hope, with hope. And the way to get there is through learning the scriptures, it's through doctrine. And that's what so many Christians are missing in our world today. Good, solid, truthful doctrine. This is why we fail. It's why we, f- we fall often when things get hard. I think some Christians uh, personally get their theology from uh, Christian songs or something like that, it appears to me. I call it soundbite theology. You know, I got my, I opened the Bible, put my finger down. Okay, got my inspirational quote for the day, so now I can move on. Or I hear a song on Caleb, okay, I'm good. That's, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like a biblical thought. I'm sure that means, I'm sure that's true. But you can get that stuff anywhere. But we, as believers, Paul says, need to have the scripture. You need to learn. You need to have doctrine. You need to know doctrine. You need to know the word. We need to dig deep. The early church was doing this. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, same word, and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The apostles' doctrine is the proper interpretation and the teaching of the Old Testament, really, specifically. It was the apostles saying, here's what the word of God means and delivering it to the church. And it's the same thing, really, we have right here in the New Testament. So it is our doctrine. Listen, when I know good scriptural doctrine, I am filled with patience, that is endurance, to make it to the end. When I know good doctrine, I am also comforted deep in my heart in any situation. When I know good doctrine, I see that there is hope no matter what's going on around me. I'm stronger because I know the doctrines of omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. I know that God is all-powerful. I know that he knows everything. I know that, that God is everywhere and in every situation. I know the doctrines of justification and sanctification, so I'm so secure in my salvation. Amen. I know the doctrines of incarnation, the fact that Jesus came. He is God. He came to the earth. And I know the doctrines of substitutionary atonement. He took my place on the cross, and it gives me such confidence. I, I, I can put up with anything because I know those doctrines. Amen. I know the the Trinity, I know how this whole thing works, and I know the second coming of Christ. I know that Jesus is coming again, and I know what God has said about that. I'm confident in eternal security that my, my, my salvation is gonna go all the way to the end, and I have power over sin because of what Jesus has done. And I know that Satan, I know what Satan can and cannot do to me. And I know the purpose of God's church, and so many other doctrines. See, that the more learning, the more doctrine that we have, the more patient or endurance we have to make it to the end. 
That's what Paul is saying. Why would anybody give their life to somebody else? Because you know, it's because you know how this whole thing works. You're so filled up with the scriptures that you realize the greatest thing I could do is give my life to somebody else. You're so filled with doctrine, so it's such good learning that you know that this life is not about me. It's about other people. And so I have endurance, I have comfort in any situation, and I have hope to make it to the end, no matter what. I'll make a bold statement here. I have never seen a Christian who is filled with God's word and filled with the the true doctrines of the faith living in hopelessness. I've never seen it. I've seen believers at some of the absolute lowest moments of their lives. I've seen people dealing with devastating loss. I've watched people as as their loved one slips away into glory. I've seen people deal with the reality of terminal cancer. I've seen people with no earthly reason to still hang on. And yet I've never seen those strong people who know the doctrines of the faith, who are confident, who love the Lord, who know the word of God, I've, I've never seen them lose hope. They have such hope. Why? Because the word of God speaks to them and they have learned from the scriptures. There's a painting, it's called Hope. It's by an artist named George Watts. It's painted back in 1886. The painting is admired by a lot of people. Most people interpret it something like this. He never left any notes on it. He just painted it and called it hope. It's a young woman sitting on a globe because she feels the cares of the world. And she's, down, she's downcast, you can see that. She's feeling the cares of the whole world. She's blindfolded because she sees no way out of her troubles. And she's playing a lyre a harp with only one string and that represents hope even when this is all she has there's only one string left and yet she can still make music she has her ear bent trying to hear the music she can still play there's always hope now if that's how it's interpreted most people interpret it that way i see what they're doing and many people are moved by this painting because of that but i will say this to me this painting doesn't describe a Christian's hope. Amen. It's totally different because our hope is not that depressing. I'm, that's depressing to me. <laughs> as a matter of fact, the artist, this artist, I read a little about him, he was raised as a Christian and then he turned his back on God and later faced a lifetime of depression. That's not hope to me. In my opinion, that's not hope. Yes, we can face, we all face extremely deep sadness and we might get very downtrodden. I mean, we, we face to that, that feeling of, yes, there's only, there's nothing left. I know, I understand that. But there is something else under, uh, underneath a Christian. There's something else much more powerful, uh, much bigger, much greater than anything in this, this world has to offer, and that is the word of God. They are resting on what God has said to this world. They are resting on truth, which brings a settledness to their heart. It brings a peace, not a gloominess to life. It brings a joy even. And this is why it is imperative that Christians read, study, and learn the doctrines of Scripture. They are the thing that will hold you up when nothing else can. 
When all you have to reach is say, God, I just know you're omnipotent and I know your word says it and so I'm just holding on to that. It's all I have left. That'll hold you up. And I just want to tell you, some people ask, well, man, reading the scripture takes so much time. Listen, how much time do you think it takes to read from Genesis to Revelation? If you read it at standard pulpit speed, they say, it would, it would take 71 hours. Well, if you break that up, that's only 12 minutes a day to read it for, in a whole year. 12 minutes a day to read through the entire Bible in a whole year. I think we could handle that, couldn't we? We can read the Bible. We can study the Bible. We can know the Bible. We have things like Faith Bible Institute and other things that really, really help get the most out of doctrine and, and get a whole view of how all of it works. Read the Bible, folks. Read the Bible as m- so much that it lives inside of you. And then you can start applying it to, to every current situation that you find yourself in. And then lastly here, number four, strong Christians make God more attractive to the world through harmony in the church. Strong Christians make God more attractive to the world through harmony in the church. Let's go through these verses quickly. Now the God of patience or endurance, and comfort, a consolation, grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. There it is, unity, harmony, that word like-mindedness. When the God of endurance and comfort is working through his word among people, among his church, they will be granted like-mindedness toward each other, just like Jesus had. Being like-minded, though, does not mean that we think all exactly alike all the time. It means that we agree that getting along is more important than our individual pettiness. It does mean that. We're all like-minded on that. It means that we are all of the same mind to be like Jesus. It means we're all working together and going in the same direction. I love watching our worship band rehearse. They do such a good job. Uh, Each musician that comes to the rehearsal and singer has an individual job. They each have their own individual job to do. And they're all going to be making different sounds. But they're following the leader. And that he gives them and helps everybody have a like-mindedness. And they're following the script. But if someone, one of the people, decides to play a different song while everybody else is playing the song they're supposed to be playing, then guess what? We have chaos and confusion. And this is what happens a lot of times in churches when weak Christians want their own way. But strong Christians are always working toward harmony. Harmony. We're working toward harmony. We're all different. We all do our different individual jobs, but we're working for harmony. And what a beautiful sound it makes when we get this right. In fact, here's what happens, verse six, that ye with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity and harmony glorifies God. See, when the church is working together, putting pettiness aside, and with all one mind and one mouth glorifying God, then it makes the world sit up and take notice of how good our Savior really is. We're all glorifying God over here because we're all getting along. We're doing what the Lord wants. Unity is so sweet. And people take notice of that unity and that sweetness and that peace that's going on. And they they say that those folks must have a real Jesus. Disunity is ugly for Christians. It is distorts the beauty of Christ, it distorts the glory of our Lord. So what do we do? Again, just be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. Look at verse seven. For wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So receive each other. Bring people into your life. Be patient with one another. 
We cannot be an us for no more church, you know. We like what we got here going on. Nobody else is allowed, you know. That's, that's not what we want to be. Always be receiving people into your life and looking to build people up. We take our example from our Savior. Verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. So Paul is saying Jesus was sent to the Jews first to testify to truth and confirm the promises and prophecies in the Old Testament to show that he was the promised Messiah. But guess what? Jesus didn't just stop with the Jews. He also came to the Gentiles. He received everybody. Look at verse 9, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. See, Jesus came to Israel, but he came for everyone. Now the Jews might say, okay, Paul, fine. Are you sh- let, me, let me just ask you this. Are you sure Jesus came for the Gentiles? I'm going to need scriptural proof of that. And the Gentiles might also say, okay, Paul, you've taught us as Gentiles to search the scripture for truth. Where does it say that Jesus came for the Gentiles in the Old Testament? Are we really accepted as children of God as much as the Jews are? Paul is glad to help both of them. I'll help you Jews and I'll help you Gentiles and let you know, I'm going to give you some proof right now in the scriptures that it is true. He first, in verse 9, quotes Psalm 18, 49 and look at these uh, other passages, verse 10. And again, he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse and He that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. So Paul quotes from Psalm 1849, 117.1, Deuteronomy 32.4.3, and Isaiah 11.10. He says, listen, don't worry, you Gentiles. God has always been thinking of you. He's always been thinking of you. But remember, the example here in this passage is for us. This is the kind of heart that we need to have toward one another. If God lets all kinds of people in, even the Gentiles, so should we. It's not right of us to hold anyone back from coming to Christ and being accepted in the beloved. Strong Christians have that kind of a heart. And they will lower their liberties. They will give up their rights to help support and bear anyone who needs them. Imagine if all churches everywhere did this. Here's what we would have, our last verse, verse 13. Now the God of hope, Fill you all, or fill with you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Oh man, that is the kind of church I want to be a part of. A church where the members are filled with all joy, filled with all peace, a believing church, a church abounding in hope, and a church that is all doing this all through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the kind of church we want. That is the kind of group I want to be a part of. What a great church for all of us to be a part of. But let me just remind all of us, it does not come by accident. We've all got to keep making that sweet, harmonious music together for the glory of our Lord. So everybody, thank you for what you do to keep the unity and keep working toward that unity because it is just such a sweet thing in the eyes of the Lord. Lord, we love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.